This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. In the past, in the past And yes, I mean one Christmas past So Merry Christmas once again Raise a glass For now the time has come to Sing another song about how we all love Doctor Who Cause it's the best thing on the bloody telly Let's sing another song about how much we all love Doctor Who Am I arguing not on your Nelly? So if you hated last year's ep, last year's ep Resume your hopeful stance The snowmen could be really good Place your bets, but now the time has come to sing another song about how we all love Doctor Who, cause it's the best thing on the bloody telly. Let's sing another song about how we all love Doctor Who, in bingo parlance it's the eye of Kelly. It's the Doctor Who podcast. It's Christmas Day. There's three of us. We thought we'd come to liven up your Christmas Day and just to make certain it's really, really wonderful. Phil, Ian, Merry Christmas. Merry Merry Christmas Christmas to both of you. It's wonderful to be here. And obviously we're recording this live because we've all left our families and friends and so on just to record specially in the moment on Christmas Day. Well, that's what I call a public service. (laughs) It's also not true. (laughs) I say, if it were true, my words would be slurring far too much for a recording. (laughs) In true festive spirit, we are going to discuss a highly Christmassy episode of Doctor Who, from the classic era, The Curse of Fenric. Hmm. Yes, the only reason we're doing it because we've seen it recently. So that's that's about the sum of that part, really, isn't oh, it? OK, <laughs> I was going to ask you, Phil, what your top three Christmas or relevant Christmas things about The Curse of Fenric plots that you'd like to discuss in detail now were. But uh, given what you've just said, perhaps I shouldn't. Well, it's 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 foggy in places. <laughs> and was there any snow in it? I kind of feel like there should have been. There wasn't really. It was just mud. Wasn't well, there's a lot of rain, yes, uh, which true. which seems to say a, a typical British Christmas. Actually, that that's that's two things. So miserable weather. Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Miserable weather, lots of fog, and uh, 
Ooh, it's World War Two. Let's say rationing. <laughs> well, yeah, rationing. That's true. Yes, I suppose you could also look at yeah. um, Ace's family and call it dysfunctional. And dysfunctional families are usually synonymous with Christmas in some form or another. Certainly are in my household. <laughs> in any case. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> it's supposedly about faith, but isn't really. Oh, well, okay. Well, deep satire and uh, <laughs> yes, not controversial in the slightest. I was better than anything I could have come up with. <laughs> it, it was actually very well considered. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> but the reason, as Phil said, we are discussing this now is because as of last month, so that was in November on Doctor Who Day, we got together at the BFI to watch The Curse of Fenric or the movie version of The Curse of Fenric um, with about two or 300 other fans of Doctor Who. It, when they were discussing the extras afterwards, they mentioned that they went back in and tweaked a couple of little bits that didn't work quite right. There was one piece they said where the, the lip syncing didn't tie up and you didn't see it on the DVD, but you did when it was upscaled to Blu-ray. And I think they readjusted oh. a couple of scenes. It wasn't massive. It's not like a director's cut, but I think they have tweaked Fine. it a little bit. So this was production edits, really, rather than story edits. Yeah, yeah. I think they... Re- that, uh, I think they reordered a couple of scenes, but only just sort of shuffled the running order around a little bit. I don't think they put extras in or anything like that. Oh, interesting. Um, because I think that must be about the third different version of Curse of Fenric then, because um, the uh, the movie version, as on the DVD, had 12 minutes extra uh, inserted into it. Um, and I think that was because episode four was overrunning massively uh, at the time of, uh, of, of filming. But for me, um, if, if the intention was to make the story coherent or more coherent, or, or less confusing, then, well, I have to say, certainly from, from my perspective, they failed spectacularly. <laughs> well, I, I find it a bit odd because I've never seen the original version of Fenric. I've only seen the oh, special right. edition. And oh, if okay. this is the more coherent version, I really shudder to think what, what the normal version must have been like. How, how, did, um, how did that work, then, Ian? You didn't watch it on broadcast or on DVD? No, on broadcast it had fallen past the point where I'd actually given up on the show at the time. Uh, because it was post Bertie Bassett, so I, I I never saw it then, never got round to watching it on DVD, and I think I think the first time I ever watched this all the way through was for the DWP actually when we did our seventh Doctor run through a few years back. I'm pretty sure that's the first time I ever saw it, and so this I'm pretty sure is the second time I've seen it. Right, so you have seen the episodic version as well. I I think that definitely has an advantage for me in as much as at least it's only 25 minutes each time. But um, it, it it's one of these stories that I find incredibly frustrating because it's abundantly evident all of the components of a really good Doctor Who story are there. It's not even compromised by some poor acting. It feels as though you've missed a few scenes and uh, you never catch up on the plot. You're almost... Um, you're almost on the back foot from the very first scene because for, for me it just feels totally and utterly confusing and the only way I've got any chance of understanding the story is to go back and read summaries of the plot on, online. And whilst that n- wouldn't normally mean I automatically don't enjoy the story, it does <laughs> for this one because I I just lose the world to live, I think, um, very, very quickly. Oh, okay, is, is there anything you like about it at all? 
not much. Says so, 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 so he doesn't doesn't like it that much either. Well, I'm but, interested. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I have to admit, I did wonder whether or not this was going to end up being a grump cast on Christmas Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, given that I thought all three of us wouldn't wouldn't really be extolling its virtues and championing its its, its strengths, but I, I think. McCoy and Aldred are comfortable with the characters that they've created. I think they're relaxed, uh, the performances. I think McCoy is mysterious without being silly. And I, I, I enjoy watching the interaction between, well, these two characters who by this point are clearly really, really close and uh, and very good friends. Uh, I, and I also think the special effects... <clears throat> are okay but that might be because they've been redone for the version that we saw on on the 23rd but aside from that then i i would say no it's um it's littered with some nice little scenes um that seem, seem to always end with the characters leaving to go somewhere else and some absolutely excruciatingly poor acting uh from some of the guest cast and Gene and Phyllis, I'm looking at you. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I can't really sort of disagree with much of what you said there. Actually, um, uh, mate, it's um, mm. yeah. I, I, one of the standouts for me is Nicholas Parsons. Um, right. I think because I mean, like, um, like Ian, I stopped watching Doctor Who when this was first broadcast. I never saw this uh, when it went out um, back in 1989. Um, because I, I started losing interest midway through the Trial of the Time Lord season. Uh, so, And I'd sort of dr- drifted in and out of um, McCoy's era. I never really connected uh, with that particular era whatsoever. So so when I sort of obviously got back into Doctor Who in a big, big way, sort of like a few years ago, started buying all the DVDs, and I saw this for the first time in its entirety, and... Um, for me, Nicholas Parsons is just known as that Sailor of the Century guy. Yeah. You know, and those in the UK don't know what Sailor of the Century was. It was a, a very long running quiz show, a very cheap quiz show um, in during the 1970s, uh, which he was very famous for. But I forgot he was originally an actor, usually a straight man uh, to other comics. Arthur Haynes, I think, was a, a comic he was a straight man for back. That's back in the 1960s. So he's been around a long time. Mm. Uh, Nicholas Parsons, but he surprised me in this. Okay, I, I thought he uh, the scenes he he, he was in. Um, I thought he acted it very very well. Okay, maybe not the bit where Gene and Phyllis <laughs> sort of pounce on him at the end. That's a little bit. Uh, no, it's all a bit like that. But um, yeah, exactly. But um, the rest of it though, I thought he was okay. I, I was I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, if you're going to okay. say stunt casting, yeah. I thought it was okay. I thought um, Anne Reed was good as the nurse. Some nice little sort of put downs now and again as well, which I thought was which were quite amusing, and it did make people laugh in the um, at the BFI. Yeah, okay. Nicholas Parsons. I have to admit, I didn't know that he was originally an actor, and uh, whilst I didn't think he was appalling in this, I wouldn't have thought he was. A, <laughs> I wouldn't have said his performance stood out. But having said that, you know, I I, I don't think he affected the story one way or the other um no i I, I just think it's uh, it's extremely difficult to understand and i think when you consider when this was broadcast which was october 1989 it was a penultimate classic story ever shown i mean who exactly were they playing this to it it was shown once a week over a month and i i 
I, I challenge anyone to have followed it back in the day without thinking, I must video this, I'm going to watch it three times, I'm going to write to the author to ask what on earth he was on about. And and then <laughs> um, it it required a degree of understanding um, of Ace's backstory because we have here the first attempt, apart from the key to time, of an arc threaded through a, a classic a classic series. And um, I, I found that, rather difficult to understand, even though I had seen Dragonfire. Obviously, the reason this was shown at the BFI because it's coming out on on Blu-ray in January now. Yeah, I must admit, everyone sort of raves about season 26. They say, you know, that the quality of the stories got better. As you said earlier, uh, McCoy and and Aldred had sort of hit their stride. They sort of gelled as, as characters, and they sort of nailed the characters a bit more. But... I find most of it incomprehensible, the whole season, not just this story. Um, I can't disagree with you. I don't get the fuss over it. I really don't. Put it this way. Of the four stories within this season, I would watch Delta and the Bannerman over any day of the week. I really would. There's so much more fun. You're you're strange about Delta and the Bannerman, and nobody else really understands that. I do have a strange affection for it, I have to say. I I, I really do. But I think certainly you you look at the opening run of um, McCoy's era, and and whilst it's not strong, you know, Paradise Towers and Delta and the Bannerman, for me, are okay. And I I, I even like Dragonfire. Um, It's it's only time in Irani that I find really difficult. But if if you look at those four stories within season 26, I, I, you know, they do have an almost mythical status. Um, And and I Mm. do wonder whether or not this is something that fandom has just concocted and constructed long after they transmitted on BBC One. And you, you talk about, or you hear about the Cartmill master plan and yeah, you can see it threaded in there if you if you look for it but as as pieces of television um or or even just doctor who classic doctor who back in 1989 this was nothing special and and for me i'm not surprised the damn thing was cancelled but uh, as i said that's not a particularly popular view or one that's uh, that cheery on christmas day <laughs> you will burn in the everlasting fires of hell you wicked evil girls it's because you've never been swimming you have black hearts there's no love in heaven or earth for you nothing for you but pitiless damnation for the rest of your lives think on it well, t- t- just to try and lift things from being the total grump fest at Christmas, um, <laughs> I actually, <I'm> bug. <laughs> I actually did enjoy quite a lot of the bits of it. I mean, I'm very much like you, James. That there's a lot to like in here. I think the production values were fantastic. I thought the acting was great. I thought the scenes uh, the, and the setting were very good. Um, the atmosphere, the creepiness, the, the, the Viking longship under the water. There were some really amazing shots and some amazing atmosphere they put together. All the individual bits I actually really, really liked. It's just unfortunate mm. that they add up to less than the sum of their whole because the, the mm. story's mm. just not there. Um, and it's funny, I, it's been quite a few years since I first watched it and I'd kind of forgotten about it other than a vague sense of, didn't really like that. And then immediately once I started watching it, I had the same feeling I had the first time I watched it. Uh, as as you alluded to it, it constantly feels like you've missed the first episode, uh, yeah. and everyone's talking about things as if there's an ongoing story, and you've no idea what they're talking about. You don't even know why 
the Doctor and Ace have turned up at this particular place and why they're doing the things they're doing, or indeed why anybody else is there and why they're doing the things they're doing. Everyone just seems to... I mean, Doctor Who's always had a little bit of running up and down corridors where, in absence of plot, we'll just go from point A to point B, have a bit of a conversation, then go back to point A again. But it's particularly bad in here where they they find excuses Mm. to go down the underground tunnel and come out the far end and they're holding the gates down why don't they just go the other way like everybody else is doing? And, 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 and as soon as they want to, they do. Or, or Ace in, in, in her amazing climb down the church tower in her uh, ladder, which looks fantastic. It was a great stunt, only to find... But what's the point? Yeah, they're, they're waiting for it at the bottom. So what was that? You just wasted your time Close completely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, at the BFI, it had Mark Ayers and they discussed um, the music with him afterwards as well. And he, he you know, this is one of the first... Um, I don't know, really dramatic scores that he, he, he put together for Doctor Who, but it could quite easily have been replaced with a Benny Hill theme when you've got Ace running up and down <laughs> clock towers. And it, it it just didn't seem to be... Oh, it didn't have any point to it. Do you know what I mean? It's a, you know, I don't mind watching a story where I don't understand bits and pieces, and I'm quite happy either for there to be genuine plot holes that I miss or indeed for me just not to understand it. But I do object to not caring and 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 i I got halfway through this at the bfi and i admittedly i wasn't very well but i i just didn't want to watch it anymore i didn't i didn't see the benefit to anybody by continuing to 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 watch it i i'd seen some kind of dreadful attempt to make ace into a an adult or some kind of erotic figure all of a sudden the wind is blowing through her clothes and i'm thinking what oh god Again, whilst I was, um, I didn't care about where the story was going. I was simultaneously flummoxed by this strange character uh, development and uh, story contrivance that, for me, was totally unimportant. You know, and then I, I was just hit with this onslaught of strange Doctor Who, Russians, Hemovores, Fenric, ah, oh, I, I, Nazis. I, yeah, I, I, I don't. I'm not a fan of this story. Funnily enough, um, in the, I, I can sense it. In, in the, the discussion afterwards, one of the things that Cartmel said, which I found quite interesting, was that through this era, basically the BBC was ignoring them. They could put essentially anything onto TV and no one was checking it, no one was editing it, no one was pushing back, no one at the BBC cared at all. And he sort of talks about this great freedom that they had to do whatever they wanted. I've got this long-standing theory, I call it the Lucas effect, that when you get creators who don't get any kind of pushback, like George Lucas when he did the prequels uh, trilogy, or the Wachowskis when they did the sequels to The Matrix, you know, people have had fabulous success and they suddenly get given complete freedom to do whatever they want and the quality dips right down because something about that challenging process and that editing process, if you read how Lucas created the original Star Wars, it was a constant battle of trying to get things in and, and refining and refining and refining until you got a really sharp, focused, good story. And I, th- I have a feeling that actually the whole of that season suffered from the fact that they could just throw anything they liked onto the screen and they indulged themselves and they were too clever by half. And what it really needed was someone to come in and really do some script editing on it because there's loads of great... P- pieces in there there's a brilliant story just trying to get out of Fenric and I suspect the same is true of the other stories in that season as well but and, and of course they don't do it now in the director's cut because they, they've totally owned this the masterpiece that certain parts of fandom have given to them and they'll never go back with a critical eye and really say huh, we, we could have done better here 
I think it's really interesting in, in the light of that, that they're now passing it off as creative freedom when actually it was just a complete apathetic approach uh, from the BBC that allowed them to just do whatever they want. Uh, so, yeah, I, I certainly think you're correct. It needed a lot more care and attention and notes or whatever. But I just don't understand why the BBC would own a property, even back in the 70s and 80s, well, particularly mid to late 80s, that they seriously weren't invested in at all. Uh, I, I I don't know why it wasn't cancelled earlier. Um, but it is interesting to hear how Cartmill and Ian Briggs, to a degree, seem to think that this was a, a masterpiece. And I, I certainly don't criticise anyone for enjoying it. There are elements that I enjoy as well. But to really pass this off as a deep, intricate, carefully crafted story, I think is uh, self-deception on a grandiose scale. Because all the fans seem to see this is this was a return to form for Doctor Who after the the stories of Dragonfire and and um, the Happiness Patrol and things like that, and so it's more serious Doctor Who and you know, the mysterious Doctor and, and you say said uh, the Cartwheel Master Plan. But do you think that if they had gone to another series, gone to season twenty seven, and they started creating more stories in a similar vein to this, do you think it would have Continued because I think, as I think as Ian said, it was too self-indulgent. The floating fans would have turned off because it was becoming impenetrable. I, th- I think they'd degree. already gone. I yeah. think they. I think they were fans making it for other fans. Um, and and yes, I do think they would have yeah. continued in this direction. Um, in terms of the quality of the stories that they were planning, of course, Big Finish have made season twenty-seven and the four stories that. Uh, were at least being lined up, um, sound intriguing. But of course, when Big Finish make a, a story, um, you know, 20, 30 years after the script was written, then you, the chances of you getting anything that would have resembled what would have appeared on telly, I think, are slim. But yeah, I think they would have continued yeah. and I think it would have ended up in the same place eventually. You, you'd have had someone come in and say, look, no more. Nice. Who, who knows? I mean, what I do think is interesting, um, certainly sitting in the audience at the BFI, is is how well, just how well, fans of Doctor Who and of this story in particular just know what's coming next. I mean, there are some stories within a classic era of Doctor Who that I know word for word because I've watched them so much. Mm. And yet, Curse of Fenric was never going to be one of those stories for me. There, there are people there who are enjoying it, and uh, I, I, I think that's brilliant, and I'm really, really pleased. I'm impressed by the fact that they know every single line of the script, and I thought, well, actually, to what extent do we know Curse of Fenric? And therefore, I, I decided to come up with a small version of... The Doctor Who podcast quiz that focused solely on the Curse of Fenric, and we've only oh, <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> so this is this is okay. uh, this is a genuine surprise. Neither Ian or Phil know that I've done this. Um, uh, the, the good news is that I only have three questions each for you both. Uh, <laughs> okay, but, uh, but it is highly highly competitive, and uh, obviously these questions are fiendishly difficult, and uh, will test your knowledge of Curse of Fenric to the limits and the only score that is completely unacceptable is nil-nil. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> they got this file and they couldn't pass the next intelligence test. Logically, it must be one. Play the contest again. Time. Throughout this game you have spent a great deal of trouble in trying to break my concentration and it's very unlikely that you will succeed now. You'll even be angry if you kill Mira! I'm 
genius. So, uh, I, I would like you to decide between yourselves who would like to go first. Oh, God, I'll get it over and done with. I'll go first. Go on. Interesting choice of tactic to go first, Phil. And I think it may possibly have paid off. Are you ready? <laughs> I just want to get out of the way and get my embarrassment <laughs> over quickly. <laughs> In what month and year was Curse of Fenric first shown on BBC One? It was, it was 1989 for a start. Uh, was it... Did it... Oh, October? I'll give you that, yes. And I didn't hear your keyboard clicking, so I assume you didn't Google that very, very quickly no, whilst you were no. making quizzical noises. Oh, was, was I, was I, oh I was kind of right then. You okay, were right. Fair yes, well done. Hey! You've done it. Yes, you uh, <laughs> surprised. Ian, this is, this is even more interesting, right? But it, you could say it's more straightforward. When was the Curse of Fenric first broadcast in Germany? Oh, good grief. Um, I didn't know it was when it was first broadcast in the UK, never mind Germany. Um, ah. um, I'm going to say it was never broadcast in Germany. Oh, and you would be incorrect, and I'm going to pass that over to Phil. Phil, would you like a guess? Oh. I'll, okay, I'll say... Uh, I, reckon, I reckon it's a few years later. I'm going to say... April 1995. No, it was May 1990, so not very, not oh, very long. And it's it's, okay. it's 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 a terrible question. I accept that, but um, I was desperately hoping Ian was going to choose to go second. But there we go. Um, <laughs> question number three. Back to you, Phil. What okay. what is historically inaccurate about the Maiden's Point signpost? Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I should be saying that on Christmas Day, should I? Um, uh, was it the wrong font or something? The wrong font. Uh, I ought to give you a point. That's a really good answer, but no, it's not correct. So, Ian, you have a chance of uh, clawing back your uh, your deficit. Is it that all signposts were painted over during World War Two? I am going to give you that. Yes, because they, they oh. most of them were taken down. Uh, but so you wouldn't have expected such a helpful signpost because, of course. There was the threat of German invasion, and the last thing we wanted to do, despite the fact that we're British and very helpful, is direct them to the towns uh, that they may be looking for. So, well done, Ian. This, this way to the supercomputer. <laughs> yes. These were Russian. These were Russian invaders, so it's okay to give them direction. One each. It's, yeah. uh, it's highly exciting. Um, what teddy bear can <laughs> Baby Audrey be seen to be holding at various points throughout the story? Um, it has a name. Uh, yes. Um, this is this is a famous. I'll, I'll give you a slight clue. I hope you don't mind, Phil. Given that clearly Ian doesn't know this, it is it, it's a never do I. <laughs> <laughs> it's a famous gaff in this story. So uh, it's 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 all over, and I, and I do not suggest that you Google, but uh, you can find it easily enough. It's obviously not that famous. Um, uh, pa- I'll say Paddington. No, but you're in the right kind of ballpark, Phil. Do you have any ideas? Uh oh. Uh, trying to think of what it could be. Oh, I don't know, Rupert. No, <laughs> but, but, oh. but once again, a, a nice try. It was Super Ted. Oh, okay. Right, Phil, back to you. This is for your your last question here. The scores are still one one. So it's anybody's game. Uh-huh. <laughs> Upon okay. which real life character was Doctor Judson based? Uh, Alan Turing. It was Alan Turing, correct. That's 2-1. Ian, you need to get this to to draw. 
See, I can keep count quite easily when we've only got six <laughs> questions. Um, what other Seventh Doctor story features the chessboard that the Doctor is seen playing in Curse of Fenric? Was it Silver Nemesis? It was Silver Nemesis, oh, correct, in Lady Painful's office. Yes. That's not bad. Uh, between between the pair of you, you got four out of six. And therefore, for a story that none of us profess to, to like, I would suggest that... Um, your Doctor Who knowledge ain't bad, guys. No, it's not too bad at all. Actually, I, I actually, I, I'm just actually going to embarrass myself too much there. <laughs> you wait till next time. But it, it depends how embarrassing <laughs> you find it to have this much knowledge about Curse of Fenric, really. <laughs> <laughs> assignment today is actually not to talk a whole lot about Fenric and how wrong the British contingent <laughs> is still. But, um, you know, talking about modern Doctor Who and beginning that era, I think we were going to, in in honor of the holiday season, and because Doctor Who nowadays mostly does holidays on New Year's, right? Um, I think we were going to look at, at the classic, the absolutely stunning performance of Sylvester McCoy in Doctor Who, the TV movie, where where McCoy's you know M- McCoy's appearance just just defined the film, right? <laughs> right. It definitely defined the first half of the film. Yeah. And uh, as someone who ca- who came into Doctor Who through the TV movie, boy, that good performance really confused me when he's <laughs> the main character dies. <laughs> did, at the end did of you, the was first your, act. Was that really? Was that your first your first Doctor Who? First televised Doctor Who, yeah. Like I, I got into Doctor Who through the comic books, and then yeah. the 96 movie was the very first episode of Doctor Who I ever watched. You're the perfect example of somebody to ask about how a, this TV movie affected a brand new audience rather than people that had seen the show many years. I mean, the tricky thing with that is what it, what it essentially did is it, it, it gave me more questions than, and than answers, and... Because of that, I went back and I, I, I got a couple of the books and read up on the history of Doctor Who. But then it wasn't like another, what, six years before we got any new Doctor Who. So um, it, it was, no, more than six. Nine. Nine, uh, yeah. nine years. Nine years. Math. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> so what do we think of uh, McCoy in the TV movie? Actually, speaking of old Doctor Who, I have to say that I remember when I watched this it was the first time I had been aware of a doctor aging. I mean, the doctor died and regenerated, but I don't remember any of the other doctors physically changing much during their time as a doctor. And so when McCoy came on the screen, I think it was a mixture of, oh, great, it's, it's McCoy. But this kind of shock of, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, what happened? What, that's, <laughs> <he's>, <laughs> it, it kind of this... It was just, I think I remember, it was almost visceral. It's like, oh my goodness, what's happened to the doctor? And he's not, okay, so now I'm probably much older than I was, than Sylvester McCoy was when he did the TV movie. And I'm thinking, why did I think he looked old? But, <laughs> but at the time, as, as a young as a youngin, um, 
yeah, the thought that my doctor had gotten old was was pretty scary. Now that's nothing, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've we've got we've got quite a few years between survival and this this episode, but I hadn't watched any of that. So this is of course my first introduction to McCoy as the doctor. So for let's say over a decade, this is what the seventh doctor looked like to me. So you never got a hat or an umbrella. Yeah, didn't get the hat, didn't get the umbrella. I mean, I saw it in books that there was references to it, but he didn't have them in the movie, so, you know. And as far as I was concerned, the TARDIS console was always a spacious, gorgeous living room with, with a library and bats. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was kind of a shock, too, because that was like nothing we'd seen before. Um, or since. But, well, oh, I suppose no, you're right. I don't think a single TARDIS, as far as, this is my favorite TARDIS. Like oh, ah. the hands well, I love down. The, I love the way I love the way the roof kind of disappears and you have the whole universe above you. Which yeah, I, yeah, that that that's it's very Hogwarts. Film, but yeah, yeah. I felt the same way you did. Like when he came in, and I thought, oh, oh, he's older, and uh, he looks much different. His, <laughs> his hair's all poofed out on each side, and and he's just yeah. chilling, reading a book, and the brand new TARDIS that was totally different from the the old one with the roundels and. I was surprised to see him in there at all, and also that he was in there quite a bit. He was maybe 15, 20 minutes before he changed. And um, it's the it's the first third of the movie. Yeah, uh, we is you know like we only get uh, the eighth Doctor for the last two acts. You know, I actually watching it again this time. I thought his performance was fine. About the only thing I didn't care for right from the first time I saw it, was the actual regeneration scene where both Sylvester McCoy and McGann do that kind of messing around with their face, pulling faces or whatever whatever you want to call it. They're gurning. McCoy did some uh, facial contortions that Pertwee would be proud of. Yeah, that, yeah that's well, definitely and a, so, a and so did so did McGann. Yeah. McGann was doing it too. So I, I don't know if that was a Sylvester idea or if that was the way they were simply directed to do it. That that was a little over the top for me, but other than that, actually rewatching this, um, I think McCoy's performance is solid. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So because we mentioned Fenris, I think it's interesting too. You know, the the Doctor dies in such a stupid way in this. Um, you know, he walks out of the TARDIS, doesn't check the console to make sure it's safe, and he gets gunned down. But what I find fascinating about it is going when we went back to the first time and, and rewatched the entirety of the series that McCoy's doctor especially in Fenris is the chess player he's always so many moves ahead of everybody and I sort of love that dramatic irony in its sense that the great chess player dies because he simply just didn't check something when he <laughs> yes. gets shot I mean it's, it's such a pedestrian way to go I mean okay admittedly Getting shot isn't what kills him. His companion kills him. But well, right, you know, that's right, that's a different right, right, different. Topic. Right. I was going to make that point, but there you go. Yeah, but um, but like he might have been fine. We could have used a little of that uh, regeneration or whatever they calling it uh, to to heal himself. But um, well, no, but the the bullets. I mean, one bullet went through his shoulder cleanly, and the other two were in his legs. So yeah, he, he wasn't going to die. He died because, as you say, his soon to be companion. Botched the American it. medical system. We can <laughs> yeah. just go ahead and say it. Hey, okay, but here's but here's a question. Drew sent us a question ahead of time when we were talking about this that I think is is really fun, and I think it bears asking. So, so what would be the Seventh Doctor's guide to surviving the holidays? 
<laughs> Don't leave the Wisdom TARDIS. from the seventh. <laughs> Stay in the TARDIS. <laughs> get a new record player so he wouldn't have to get up. None of this would have happened. Oh my God! Yes. Yeah, he's got to get one of those shock absorbent turntables, right? <laughs> that that uh, that doesn't bounce during the time eddies. I think um, one of the things we learned is that in 1963, it's okay to park in a dark alley in a major city, but probably not in 1999. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Also, beware of Daleks bearing gifts, apparently. Like... <laughs> Don't offer a ride to the master, even if the master's dead. Even if the master's a liquid <laughs> snake. <laughs> Stick to your friends at the holidays, not your enemies. Uh, yeah. Well, as you said yeah. before, check the monitor before going outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think that's one of those lessons that probably every incarnation of the Doctor has had that moment where so much would be solved if you had just checked the monitor before you you walked out <laughs> your door. Hmm. Well, speaking of questions, uh, I, I had a couple more. I thought I would I would send your way. Just I don't know. It, there's something. There's something fun about uh, gathering together with friends, and that's one of the things that we get in the holidays. And I, I'm a, I, I do like asking questions. Brent, you have to get a secret Santa gift for one of the McCoy era villains. Who, well, whose name did you pull, and what did you get them? Ah, oh, dear. Let's see. Maybe a nice dog collar for Helen A. Oh wait, she don't need that. Um, <laughs> Fenric could certainly use a nice chest chess set from Barnes and Noble. But right. uh, I think I would get Kane from Dragonfire. I'd buy him a really nice portable heater. <laughs> <laughs> all, right, all right, all right, I want one. I, I'm going to okay. draw the master. I'm going to draw the master uh, from Survival, uh, and I would gift him catnip. catnip. <laughs> nice. Oh, well done. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It would really relax the master. Oh, oh. Now I have this idea, this image of Anthony Ainley just rolling around in the tall grass of the cheetah planet and just kind of like contently stopping after a while to warm himself in a sunbeam. Oh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful image. <laughs> There's your alternate ending. <laughs> you know what? Oh, I just had a, the other gift you could give him would be a cardboard box. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think I think essentially what you're thinking you is up. like it doesn't matter what gift you got the Ainley Master from Survival, it would be the box that it came in that he would enjoy more because that's just <laughs> that's just how it works. Yep. Well, since we are talking about the new year, um, you know, which is which is as you're listening to this just a week away essentially, um, looking back on the year, how has Doctor Who impacted 2019 for you? Oh, you know what? I I can I can do that one easy. Um, the return of the Doctor Who podcast that that to me to me is uh, probably the highlight of the Doctor Who related year for me. It's it's just such a pleasure to be back chatting with friends and talking into microphones in small rooms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have been really disappointed if that wasn't your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, this was a a year without Doctor Who, basically. So yeah. For me personally, I would have to say the the release, all the current releases of the Blu-ray sets that are coming out. I really look forward to those. And in fact, the UK versions are far better than the US versions to the point where I'm ordering from over there now instead of here. <laughs> so I get the sets that have the fold-out book and the, the 
the different uh, images on each disc and everything is those things are so well put together. Aesthetically, right? The content is still the same. Right. Okay. Well, that's good because <laughs> I ordered a whole bunch of them for Christmas for myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've went to four Doctor Who conventions this year, and it's it just kind of reminds me, even without Doctor Who, I still have my Doctor Who family. And uh, it, it's just so nice to gather together with friends because not only did I have the con- the conventions, I've got the, the podcast too. I think we had a really, I mean, uh, we've just had so much fun putting together these podcasts and projects i mean there isn't a time i don't think this entire year why i wasn't busy doing something doctor who related and that's impressive for a year where there isn't any on the television is there a doctor who gift that you are looking forward to receiving this holiday me personally would be uh the macro terror on dvd or blu-ray yeah i've seen it but i don't own it so you know i have to be a doctor who fan and own completely everything there is uh, video wise, yeah, especially that you know, knowing full well that it's going to be released in some box set, animated box set, probably yes. in the next three or four years. I'm pretty sure, yeah. How about you, Michelle? You know, I I'm thinking of my family, and odds are I won't get a Doctor Who related gift. But um, so I guess I'll go with the return of the TV series shortly after Christmas. There's nothing wrong with that. I am happy to say that at the the time of recording, I have ordered off of Barnes & Noble's 50% off sale the final DVD, the final classic Doctor Who DVD that I was missing. And when it arrives uh, in a week or so, I will have everything that is available on DVD. Even though, like what? I said previously. So which one? Which one? Yeah, which one was that? Even though, as I said previously, <laughs> they're all coming out in collected forms. Uh, my final classic Doctor Who was the third Doctor story, The Time Monster. So that that is the last one. It was the, the hard, one of the hardest ones for me to find. Okay. So I also ordered myself the Macrotera. So I'm looking forward to sitting there and watching that on the big screen. So unlike the seventh Doctor, hopefully we will be celebrating the new year alive. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You're <and> here. <laughs> You aim high with your New Year's <laughs> greetings. <laughs> From all of us in the U.S. contingent of the Doctor Who podcast, Merry Christmas, Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. In- indeed, Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. <laughs> and Happy Everything. Happy Everything. And Happy happy New Doctor Who on TV. Yay. That goes double, yeah. Another drama There's a second Mara But it's not a snake, no This one's Kate O'Mara In big old leg warmers And a ginger wig It's in times like these that You just need the break With a great big gun and a single bullet The seventh doctor is no use He's too busy playing spoons And malappropriating 
got little short legs Do the species take trap But the base has wheelchair access Up the central ramp And why there's a bloody big brain in there Is anyone's guess The whole sorry story Is a cerebral mess I blame the bakers I blame the bakers, yeah The seventh doctor is no use He's too busy playing spoons And malappropriating Men are squealing over there Please set fire to her hair She needs a But you're not the worst we ever had And then there's the strange matter Of 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 the strange matter I am far more than just another time lord. Well, f- thank you to our American cohort for uh, joining in the Christmas spirit here. If, if being um, electrocuted in a hospital and put in a morgue is, is Christmassy, I suppose it might be. Well, it's New Year-y. Yeah, yeah. Or New Millennium-y. Yeah, yeah, this is true. <laughs> yes. New Millennium-y. <laughs> Go on, say that quickly three times. No, I can't. I've been drinking. <laughs> So thank you everyone for rejoining us in 2019 as we, we brought the DWP back to life and we'll be carrying on into 2020 and indeed, we're not quite sure how yet, but we will be reviewing season 12 when it comes along. So happy Christmas and looking forward to a wonderful new Doctor Who year. Woo woo. So we're all excited for New Year's Day. Absolutely. Then. Certainly after watching The Curse of Fenwick. <laughs> 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 well... We'll see you again very soon, dear listeners. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a wonderful Christmas and a very happy new year to you all. Speak to you all in 2020. Bye for now, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to episode 300 of the Doctor Who podcast with James, Phil, Ian, Michelle, Drew and Brent. Songs were by Leeson Fisher and Harry Medium from the Radio Rassilon podcast. And as we leave you at this festive time, all that remains is to wish that all of your Santas be evil murderous robots, your Christmas trees spinning whirling machines of death, and your snowman to have great intelligence. And of course, your feast to be of Stephen. Incidentally, a happy Christmas to all of you at home.